Welcome to the Shalom Hartman Institute podcast. I'm Alan Abbey. The Hartman Institute is a center of transformative thinking and teaching. We address the major challenges facing the Jewish people and elevate the quality of Jewish life in Israel and around the world. For details on seminars in Israel and North America, go to hartman.org.il. And now, David Hartman, President Emeritus and founder of Shalom Hartman Institute, with the second lecture in his four-part series titled, How Do the Different Interpretations of the Mythic Story of the Exodus Shape Our Vision of Jewish History? I say the concept of true or false doesn't enter into the religious vocabulary. What enters into the categories of evaluating any religion, is it meaningful to you? Does it afford you some comfort? This is Jay, my metapel. Hi, Jay, thanks. Does it offer something? which you may not be able to articulate in sentences or in clear concepts, but that's irrelevant. The issue is not, is it true or false? The issue, does God exist? It's not a question if it's true or false. My only concern is if you say you believe in God, does that have any significance in your life? Does it get expressed in certain values that you choose? That is the issue. To me, I'm interested in the consequences of your assertions, of your belief assertions. And I evaluate a religious philosophy in terms of its pointing to certain possibilities, certain opportunities which you wouldn't have felt otherwise. So if my mother would go to shul and she would I'm not going to say, Mom, what are you doing? It's the nonsense. I mean, it would be meaningless for me. You evaluate religious language not by its assertive quality, not by its descriptive quality, but by its effect and the consequences of your life. And if a person says Mishaberach and he feels comfort, he feels security, he feels not alone, he feels that in some way the Lord is responsive to him, God bless you. Fine. I have no issues with those things. Similarly with Tfilat Bakasha, petitional prayer. There's not a one-to-one correspondence. Petitional prayer is significant because you feel you are able to share the deepest concerns and your fears with X. Does he respond? Sure he responds, but not necessarily in terms of the 
language of the prayer. It may be a response in another way. Religious people then do not define how God is going to react. They have a sort of intuitive belief that in some way he does respond. How does it get manifested itself? I don't know. I have no solution to the ultimate mysteries of reality. It may have significance in a totally different frame of reference than you are, are aware of. So in other words, I'm trying to develop now in my old age <laughs> a conception of religion which, which is not what one would call some ra rational, factual truth. Leave me alone with factual truths. They don't do anything for you. The philosophers have been writing books since Aristotle and nothing got better in the world. Believe me, philosophy is nonsense. It is important if you read William James essays on faith and morals, you look at what he talks about. There's two essays which I ask you to read, if you can find it. What makes a life significant is one essay on a certain blindness in human beings. Those two essays, you should simply daven them. Take them to Shul and Yom Kippur. Really, I mean that. If someone says, who gave you this type of siddur? Say, that's this new siddur that's being put out by Hartman. And think about it. Let it sink into you. His essay on a certain blindness in human beings is just that. We, the whole truth is not given to anyone. This, wherever you are situated, humanly, the issue is, what does it bring you? Yes. Excuse me. Yes? Very good. Okay, now that that is clear, so I've cleared up. I'm not out to shut the Mishaberachs. I'm not out to say, is it true? Did God respond? I God, you know, has his mysterious ways. How he may respond, in what way, that's not the issue. You feel not alone in your pain. That's the issue. Heal us. Does that mean you're going to get healed? I don't know if that's even that. The language of prayer is an expression of personal need, which I understand. It's born from your own human situation. It's not for me to judge. Is that an authentic human situation? Are you allowed to feel better? Are you allowed to feel more at home in the universe? That you're not just flying all over? That you're anchored someplace? That's what's important. You feel you have someone to turn to. Who this someone is, I don't know. How does he 
going to act. I have no need. Hashemayim, Shemayim, Lashem. The heavens that belong to the Lord. So I don't evaluate religion by descriptive, assertive category. I am deeply committed to demythologize all forms of ontological claims, which seem to want to make a truth claim. I'm not there. And I haven't yet found someone who has offered me a compelling truth in any form of religion. Torah Messina, what? What does Torah Messina mean? It means that I feel in some way as a member of this people that at a certain moment in history, my people felt that they heard the word of God. What am I going to say? No, you didn't hear. You understand where I'm going. So in my next book, you're going to, it's going to be developed. I've come to that, Halevi. I mean, all the accusations of Hartman's Maimonidianism and rationalism will explode. And I finally will, I think, be true to what happens to the human being when he's in a situation of prayer, why he loves to go to a synagogue. Why do you want to go to a synagogue for? What's there? You, what, you know what's there? People. And you're part of people. You feel you're not alone. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with trying to make yourself feel better? Feel at ease feel anchored in the universe. Does anyone have any other offering to give me which would in some way provide that type of experience? So hands off. Hands off. Don't judge the truth of something. Listen to people explain how it feels for them. The meaning it gives to them. The sense of joy or the sense of purpose. Listen to what they feel. Don't judge if they're asserting something true. I have never had arguments with an atheist. Doesn't interest me. She says, can you prove to me that you, all your times you put on film every day, it makes a difference? I said, I don't know. Do you know it doesn't? <laughs> I mean, to cl I feel the assertion that there is no God is more radical and beyond what you know than the assertion that there is a God. How do you know there is no God? How do you know that prayer doesn't in some way provide some deep meaning and security? How do you know that it doesn't? So it's, I don't, I feel good this way. I feel very good I came to this because I feel I'm true to my mother's religion. I'm true to what religious people feel. And to see their joy when they say Tilim. So my nephew said Tilim for my son-in-law when his plane was shut down. And he would come to me and say, 
Dovi, can you give me some money to give to people to say Tilim? Let him say Tilim. If he asked me, can you give me your whole month's salary? I would in some way say, Ezra, that's too much of an investment. I mean, in other words, what, what, what are you asking for? Are you asking me for something that I could live by? Or you're asking me to give up my own minimal, ordinary needs. So you remain in the ordinary. Religion doesn't transform your everyday life. It offers you an alternative. It provides you some mythic picture which you want to, you know, cuddle into. Religious language is a cuddling thing. You cuddle, you know, it feels good. That's why I'm very not excited about people who are constantly changing their prayer book, because it makes it not Hamish. It's not something I got used to. And I understand now in my congregation, the older people merge with another shul. And for them, having a chazen was the quintessence of being in shul. And I couldn't tolerate a chazan with his gorgling. <laughs> I had enough with that with Pavarotti. I didn't need the chazan to do it for me. But for Mr. Derma, without it, he feels he's in the cold. And I would say, stop, Mr. Derma, it has no meaning. He looked at me, pissed that you are. I'm 85. You're a young rabbi of 35, 32, and you're telling me what gives me meaning? Hands off. I was such an arrogant young rabbi. I bechlal am an arrogant person. You know, I learned from the Rambam that. The Rambam was the least tolerant. He was an arrogant man because the Rambam was stuck with the concept of truth. The Rambam was looking to see how can I develop a conceptual scheme which would make the universe coherent to me through a whole different metaphysics. So his concept of Anochi Adonai in the Ten Commandments is I am being. As I gave you a text last week in the Mishnah Torah, God is the necessary existence in which all that exists, exists through him. So for the Rambam, Adonai is the necessary existent. The existent that is not dependent on anything outside of himself. For the Rambam, the great religious search is to feel that your intellect was able to in some way grasp, have some inkling into the majesty of divinity. And that was that turned him on totally. For Yehuda Halevi, the issue was not truth. For Yehuda Halevi, I believe, the issue of Anocha Adonai meant, I am related to you. Adonai is Hashkacha Pratit. I am in your life. You could turn to me 
in all times of need. So for Yehuda Levi, the focus is relationship. For the Rambam, the issue is not relationship, the issue is existence, the nature of this existence. A clear, and that's why he fought so hard on, against anthropomorphism. And he believed it was similar to idolatry. But he says, I could understand the masses of people would not have any sense of inkling of God if they didn't think in human images. So, But the Rambam, if you asked him, could you tell me something about God? You know what he'd say? I don't know. Go speak to someone intelligent. I don't know anything about God. I only know I am because God is. So what you bring to God in the Maimonidian world is a sense that you're touching perfection. You're touching what may be the ultimate ground of reality. That experience is for him rewarding. That's the fulfillment. My mind has in some way broken through the limits of my body. I've been able to go beyond what my body limits me for. And that's why Plato as well, it's a long tradition in philosophy. For philosophers, the big problem is how do I trans transcend my body? How do I don't allow my body to limit what I could understand? So it's a liberation from the limitations of your own material existence. So for, for Plato, philosophy was dying away from the body. Liberate yourself from that which prevents you from getting a deeper understanding of the transcendent God. And there's a whole school. They were looking to, to grasp what this ultimate principle of reality is. So sometimes you read the Guide of the Perplexed, and I'm already 80 years old. I've read it several times, believe me. Because the television programs are not interesting. Wait, wait the NBA season begins. Anyway, so I go at night, I get up, I don't sleep well. So I get up and I read The Guide of the Perplexed. And I see what turns him on. And for me, it's ice cold. So what is this? What have you done for me? And you read Halevi's Kuzari, you're in, in a warm sun. And therefore, for Halevi, the living experience of the people of Israel in history, in which they experience a providential God, is for him the ultimate foundation of religion. That's the foundation. Anoch Adonai, how do you know what Adonai is? He brought you out of Egypt. He heard your cry. He felt your suffering as a slave. That for Yehuda Levi is very important. For Rambam, the second half doesn't have to be there. 
Anochi Adonai, stop. I am being. I am the ultimate ground of reality. The necessary ground that makes existence possible. Stop. Not that the Rambam didn't feel was important, but that was the whole issue of how central are miracles in your religious life. For Yehuda Levi, miracle is the language of God in his relationship with human beings. To give up miracle is to give up the way God breaks into your human life. When you tell the story of miracle, what you're saying is, I'm not alone. There's a providential intimacy I have. And God speaks to me in my lived reality through miracle. By miracle, you know, Kaplan went crazy with that, supernaturalism. That's right. It's beyond nature. It's a transcendent principle that breaks through into reality. For Spinoza and all the rest, it was nonsense because God is reality. So he's not going to alter his own reality. What is, is divine for Spinoza. For Yehuda Halevi, that's not the point. The point of religion is hashkacha pratit, personal providential design. If we're in the Six-Day War, you saw, you saw what happened to everybody else? That's God's providential design. He acts in this land in a different way than he would act with you if you were in another land. This land is the home of God. Here is where he breaks through. It's the land of miracle. What do you mean? It's the land of God. And God is the ultimate principle of this reality. That's all. Now, my arguments with the Gushemunim people is that I'm saying, what price? What price? That's all. The price of my children and grandchildren having to serve in the army for 30, 40 years doesn't sit well with me in terms of my religious life. I want a concept of God that doesn't lead me to eternal war. I want a concept of God which doesn't go crazy if I'm giving up part of East Jerusalem. There's no holy wars in my God. God is love, God is justice, God is peace. That's my imagery of my myth. That's the God I carry with me. And as other people carry the God of Adonai Ishmael Chama, and they tell the story of the liberation from Egypt, and the people drowning in the sea, the Egyptians, and they tell the story of the plagues, that God brought on the enemies of Israel. And therefore, if you look at your Psalms, you see these, you should read Sefer Tehillim. I brought two books, 
Choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The sky declares his handiwork. Day unto day pours forth speech. And night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words. Unheard is their voice. Yet their message extends through all the earth. And their words reach the end of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun. Which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. Like an athlete rejoicing to run the course. It sets out from one end of the heaven. This is a pagan mythic imagery of the changes of the seasons of the sun. A poetic pagan description of God as he gets revealed in the forces of nature. Go ahead. Sets out from one end of the heaven and round it passes to the other end. And there is nothing hidden from his heat. The Lord's Torah is Now perfect. look what happens. Suddenly, the psalm shifts. The first half is talking about the cosmic world. The heavens, the Shemayim, Shemayim, Hashem. Hashemayim is Sapkam Kvodeil. The heavens declare the glory of God. So this is a religious sensibility that sees in the rhythms of nature the key to the ultimate mystery of God. And he goes to nature to in some way try to unravel that mystery. But then he shifts from nature, from a cosmic God, he moves into what? Torah Hashem. The Lord's Torah is perfect, refreshing the soul. The Lord's testimony is trustworthy, teaching the simple man wisdom. The Lord's precepts are right, gladdening the heart. The Lord's commandment is clear, enlightening the eyes. The Lord's faith is pure, enduring forever. The Lord's judgments are true. They are altogether just. They are more desirable than gold, than much more, than much rare gold. Sweeter are they than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. Thy serpent is indeed careful with keeping them, and keeping them is great reward. Yet who discerns his own errors, of unconscious faults hold me guiltless. Restrain thy servant also from willful sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be blameless, and I shall be clear of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing before thee, O Lord, my stronghold and my redeemer. What gives him a sense of life and meaning? I hope you, it happens to you when you say this in the morning. You should take your time when you're davin. Don't say the whole thing. Choose. Choose what, you, what may touch you, what may move you, and do it again and again until in some way you imbibe its spirit. When you feel that the prayer book is something you have to run through, it's crazy. I have people who tell me, we have a minion that knocks it off in 18 minutes knocks it off. No hurry. No one's knocking it off. No one's counting the minutes. No, that's why it's shuls are dangerous. If you think the shliach tzibu or the other party force you to be with them and be together with them. Slow. Imbibe it. What, what does the psalm say? It's sweet like honey. Special honey. 
then you say to yourself, where is he taking me? This psalmist. Where was he in the beginning? When he told me, in the beginning he told me, look at the skies. Look at the movements of the heavens. Look at the miracle of the rotations of the sun. They're running a race. And he gives them mythic language. He's awe. Nature inspires awesomeness. I stand open-mouthed. I cannot grasp the immensity of the cosmic experience. So the only thing I could do is humbly sit and be quiet and contemplate. But then he shifts his mood. Then he says, wait, there's another access I have to the Lord, which is what? which is living Judaism, Torah and mitzvahs. And he gets inspired by the perfection, the depth of meaning, the depth of way of life that the living Torah provides for him. So he, on one level, he's awesome, awestruck. On another level, he's engaged. He's uncovering the depth and the joy of the mitzvah. two moods. The first half would be very close to both Maimonides and Halevi, and the second half equally to both. But I always am very moved by the transition, the movement from the speechless cosmos to the speaking Torah in my life. That's why it's interesting. If any of you studied in the yeshiva, which I don't recommend, but, I mean, you could have a mythic image of it. We used to sing when we read Gemara. We'd sing a nigan when we were studying because it was in some way something that evoked joy, music, different. In the heavens, what do you do? You don't sing. You sit quietly. You're dumbstruck. See, the problem with synagogues or with people who are trained to be prayer speakers, it's a race. It's a race. The prayer book is a dangerous book. It's a suggestive book. It's an evocative book. It has so many different rhythms, so many different moods. Allow yourself to experience that. Don't feel rushed. Don't feel, you know, they used to say in Yiddish, the shtibel I used to go to, they went through chakras like mad. Because there's so much there. And you feel the mitzvah is to say it all. The mitzvah is not to say it all. 
The mitzvah is to feel it part. Let it speak to you in your personal life. And I'm not going to legislate which one should be meaningful to you. Your own encounter sets you into a certain frame of reference which you want to be in. And that's ultimately what the prayer book is about. It affords you different music to in some way imbibe. And if it doesn't, I'm not going to say it's meaningless. <laughs> that word doesn't exist in my vocabulary anymore. It did when I was young. What? Siddha doesn't need revision, excuse me. That's what Kaplan's illusions were. He was going to write an Agada that everyone is going to enjoy Pesach. He's going to rewrite the Siddha and everyone is going to daven with Kavanah. The problem is not the prayers. The problem is the prayer. The one who's davening is the problem. How do you free him from the terror of unthinking blabbling of words? That's the issue. You can make the Siddha this. I say very little in the morning. I have a whole way I cut out. And someday I say, maybe I'll peek a little bit into what I left out. Just chop, chop. I immediately go to Birchas Krishma. And the Amida. How do I... My big problem when I was a rabbi, I, let me digress for one second, was how do I free my congregants to be free in shul? How do I create an atmosphere where they feel free? Free to explore, free to think, free to stay in one prayer and allow it to speak to you? How do I do that? I didn't succeed. I try used to tell them, just say Baruch Atah Adonai, and that's enough for a whole day. To speak of God as Atah, thou, you don't have to read Bubazai and thou, but God, what does it mean? Personal confrontation, you and him. What does that do to you? Just, just do that. What? Why him? Because this week he's male. <laughs> Next week I'll say, why her? I allow him to change his identity when he wants. I'm not going to force him into masculinity. That would be idolatry. And to think if I say her, he becomes meaningful, she becomes meaningful, is nonsense. I'm trying to tell you it depends on you, what you bring to it what sensitivities you bring. The changing of the prayer books is not going to make it happen. I, Davin, I have in my house Reconstructionist prayer book, Reform, Conservative, Orthodox, Ultra-Orthodox, I don't know. None of them do it. It's that I say this myself, Hartman, think about what you're saying. 
and I talk to myself before I daven. That's, that's the task. How can you create in this halachic obsession, you know, salvatic obsession that you can't change anything? Why not? Certain things, yes? A little louder, please. Moshe, you want to give him the microphone so I could hear him? Yes, right. So for some people, you'd see at Mitzrayim. <laughs> Thank you, Fred. It's an expression of Hashkacha Pratit, of divine providence. For others, the Exodus is a story in which God is not held prison by the existing reality. It's the assertion of the freedom of God to break into history when he sees. He remembers the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He asserts himself. He breaks in. That's, that's what I'm interested in. I live with a God who is not constrained by the living forces of history. And therefore the, the world is in some way an open play field for him to act in. What he's going to do in that play field is open. Yitzhak Mitzrayim is just a picture of a mythic world in which everything, you saw God as a multiple player of what he can do with the forces of nature. You stand there and say, wow, it's like Cassius Clay. I mean, no, he, he ain't inhibited by anything. There's nothing that prevents him from breaking through in an alternative way. So when you think of the exodus from Egypt, you feel you're living in an unpredictable world. The concept of necessity leaves you. But there's one Gemara which is very important, which I want to study with you. And this will conclude the lecture. What do you do when, first of all, what do you do when it's not all nice and pink? And what do you do when you do, do have serious questions? Come a little closer. Right here. Okay. You say, you say, you want to just go according to Halevi, I forget my modities, all intellectual, whole intellectual side. But not everything goes according to Halevi's plan, and not everything is always perfect. And you brought the Six-Day War. But you yourself told me and us previously that you thought after the Six-Day War that you saw God's hand in history. But then in Yom Kippur, you thought maybe Rosaloveitchik was right when he said not to make a holiday about it. And when you have a real question, I don't think Halevi is going to help you out. When you have a real question, saying I feel, I feel like I have a question, so I need an answer. You need, you need intellectual inquiry. Well, I want you to know, and I want to tell you a secret that God should bless you with the courage to stay with your question. To stay with your question. And think again. Probe again. You never know what's going to touch, what's going to move you to see perspectives in another way. Yehuda Levi orients you to a different religious thrust. Maimonides to another one. Personally, I've been a Maimonidian for 40 years, and I'm leaving him now. 
I'm not going to Yehuda Levi, but I'm looking for a nice Hasidic Rebbe that I could go to and be touched by him. I haven't found it yet. I'm looking to be moved. I'm looking to cry. I'm looking to sing my religious life. And what Yehuda Levi focuses is, is a God who is intimately related with me. Now, what if I don't feel that? Okay, so then you're going to have to try something else. In other words, Judaism offers you multiple possibilities of where you could dance in. I realize that, but the room for all different possibilities is only if you actually learn things intellectually and not just feel them. Well, if you, in order to be able to enrich your religious life, it's important to study. I agree with you. Not to be stuck in one place. I always said in one of my books that the Shulchan Aruch, the Kitzah Shulchan Aruch is like a bathtub. You just go into the bathtub and you don't move. Whereas for me, the Yam HaTalmud, the ocean of the Talmud, is what I enjoy. Because there I can swim, different strokes, listen to different people talk about it. See, that's what Pilpul Chaverim, you know, if Israel would be an interesting religious reality, people would be talking about different perspectives. Here, if you offer a different perspective, you were thrown out of Shas. <laughs> a blessing, blessing. But here, there's no debate. Here, there is no arguments. Everybody got the truth. The only truth, so help me God. Yes. I, Shlomo Kalbach, people don't know, used to go to Harlem to get religiously inspired by Nina Simon. And his daughter goes to the Baptists to be moved. A Baptist choir. I've got the Lord in my hands. God, wow. Powerful. Powerful stuff. Now, does it have the imprimatur of the Agudas Arabonim, of the RCA? I don't know. It could sometimes. It's not relativism. It is the awareness that no one controls totally what can move people. Why do you have to stop somewhere? Why do you have to cut it off? Let yourself be inspired by multiple things. I don't... The point is this. I don't want to ignore the question. And it's a very important question. Maimonides didn't look at who wrote Alpha Rabbi's books. He didn't look if it came from an Arab or from a Hasidic rabbi. He doesn't he even says himself, I don't quote the people I got from because I know because they're not Jewish, many people would turn away from it. I don't look. I studied five years in Fordham University with the Jesuits. I was more religiously inspired there than I was at Yeshiva University. So what am I gonna say? I'm in Fordham, I meet Father Norris Clark or Robert Pollock. They touched me. When I read something, I don't ask, where is he from? 
Where's his Rebbe? What does he say? And I'm open to what they say. Now, if you tell me reading Shakespeare is going to open to you new vistas of the depth of human experience, kolakavod, wonderful. I choose to get inspired by Jewish things because it connects me more to my family. And I want to be close to my mishpacha. I have a deep mishpacha need. That's the criteria. I want to be part of the mishpacha called the Jewish people. But this mishpacha doesn't close me from the world. It doesn't, it doesn't shut doors to me. I can play with the music from all over. So when I dive in in the morning, I listen to a Hasidic record. And I also have a very nice record by, what's that one? Mishnah. The elders in Rome were asked, if your God has no desire for idolatry, why does he not abolish it? They replied, if it was something... One second, so what was the question? If God doesn't want idolatry, why doesn't he destroy those objects in nature which evoke some sort of idolatrous feelings? Why doesn't he declare war on the objects of seduction. Go ahead. If it was something unnecessary to the world that was worshipped, he would abolish it. But people worship the sun, moon, stars, and planets. Should he destroy his universe on account of pools? pools? They said to the elders, if so, he should destroy what is unnecessary for the world and leave that what is necessary for the world. They replied, if he did that, we should merely be strengthening the hands of the worshippers of these because they would say be sure that these are deities for behold they have not been abolished that's the Mishnah so the Mishnah is setting up the elders of Rome are pushing is there divine providence why doesn't he act in the world to destroy idolatry okay so what's the answer look so the Mishnah says, they said, what can he do? People are worshipping the sun, the moon, cosmic. If he's going to destroy that, there's no universe. So I can't allow man's worship needs or pagan needs to define what is necessary in reality. Okay, good. Now let's go to the Gemara. Our rabbis taught. Chaim, say it clearly so they can follow you. Not too close to you. Go ahead. Our rabbis taught. Philosophers asked the elders in Rome, if your God has no desire for idolatry, why does he not abolish it? They replied, if it was something of which the world has no need that was worship, he would abolish it. If people worship the sun, moon, stars, and planets. Should he destroy the universe on account of fools? The world pursues... Here's the most important sentence which Maimonides heard. Olam... The world pursues its natural course. What the heck does that mean? It means that nature doesn't get altered by human sin. There is a structure built into nature which pursues its natural course. And it remains that way. Continue. Look at it. They give different examples. Go ahead. 
And as for the fools who act wrongly, they will have to render an account. Another illustration. Suppose a man stole a measure of wheat and went and sowed it in the ground. It is right that it should not grow, but the world pursues its natural course, and as for fools who act wrongly, they will have to render an account. Now, what is it? What is it? Din who? What is the Gemara expression? Din who shaloyitzmach. It shouldn't grow. Nature shouldn't allow sin to be effective. It should respond by saying, "This wheat came through stealing. It's not going to grow." Din who shaloyitzmach. It shouldn't grow. You're right. Because the Lord of nature and the Lord of Torah, the Lord of morality, are one. So his universe should express that unity. Nature should vomit out all actions of sin. So what do they say? No. Olam kimin hakonoheg. What does that mean? But God, why don't you, why don't you play the game? Why don't you act? What does Olam Kimin Hako Noheg mean? That God does decides not to respond in history? Olam Kimin Hako Noheg. Go ahead, continue, please. Another illustration. Suppose a man has intercourse with his neighbor's wife. It is right that he should not conceive. She should not conceive. But the world pursues its natural course, and as for the fools who act wrongly, they will have to render an account. This is similar to what Rav Shimon ben Lakish said. The Holy One, blessed be he, declared, not enough that the wicked put my coinage to vulgar use, but they trouble me and compel me to set my seal thereon. They compel me? What does that mean? What's going on here? So a guy has, he rapes his neighbor's wife. She gets pregnant and delivers a child, and God says she shouldn't. I mean, the man, the, they're asking the philosopher, it shouldn't, it shouldn't conceive, it shouldn't work. So God says, they force me to set my seal, to give them the Tzalem Elohim. I have to, in some way, make the child express the image of God. Who forces you? What human beings force you? How do you understand the Gemara here? It's a very powerful Gemara. Let me offer one suggestion of how I read it, but I hope you read it at home. I gave you the Steinsalz thing and I gave you Psalm 119 a lot. Brenda, there's the Steinsalz thing here, no? What page? Yeah, here. Page 16, 17. Read the text. Lo dayan l'rishayim she'osim sela shel pumbi l'shematrichim oti u'machtimin oti bal korchi against my will. Bal 
Don't call she. What's going on here? What, God lost control? He's saying the universe should not, a raped woman should not become pregnant. Those seeds should not work. Dinhu shelo yitaber. Dinhu shelo yitzmach. It shouldn't grow. What is dinhu? The true understanding of God should require that these things are not effective. So in other words, in the effectiveness, it looks as if God has abandoned the world. What is the olam kimin hagonoeg? The world pursues its natural... No! The world pursues what you, God, want. That's what Ashkacha means. You're the boss. Why do you let these things happen? What do you want about this? Hold it for the show off for next week. Why do you let it happen? So the answer there is the same thing. It's Olam Kimin Hako no Heg. There's a world. And there's natural forces. There's moral evil. And that has its own power and its own consequences. I don't step in. Zoom. Stop. You just raped a woman. It won't work. No. The sperm works irrespective if it was kosher or not kosher. There is a natural structure of order in the universe, natural powers. One of those powers is that if you conceive in a certain way, a child is pregnant. If you plant seeds in the earth, there are imminent principles, internal principles of order of nature which functions irrespective of the moral intent. So what God is saying here, I have left the world to pursue its internal strengths and causality. There's an internal causality which God doesn't break out of. He is caught by his own structure yeah, because I said in the Bible they should not commit adultery. It's against my will, adultery. And yet, it is effective. So what I'm claiming is that the God of, of the will of God in the Yehuda Levi paradigm is not one who just, okay, Chaim had sex now with Miriam. Can't work. No. Chaim has sex with Miriam, meaning that he is using the forces of nature to serve him. So the very forces of nature which God has implanted in the world sets the tone for how God responds. There's, a, there's an olam ki minhago no heg. What is minhago? According to its natural causal forces. Why can't, in Yitzhak Mitzrayim, God broke into it? Why, why can't he break into it at all times? I think, in some way, this re reflects a Spinozistic universe. That in some way, the Gemara is open to, in a sense, that God 
does not alter his own creation. He's bound by his own structure which he has made the world into. But then he rightfully says, but in the Shema you say, so what's going on? Do you react if I sin or don't you react? Are you involved in my actions or have you left me in a universe of necessity? Does necessity reign or does your will reign? You have created necessities. You've created a universe with rules, with laws, with principles of action. So that's you. But it's not only you, because we know that you've also given us a picture of how you break into it. So are you a breaker in God? Does Hashkacha give me an open-ended universe? to anticipate everything is possible, everything is possible, or everything is not possible. There are certain inhibitive forces that prevent God's free action. Now what, how do you work that out? But this Gemara is, often, is, is amazing. And the philosophers are asking the rabbis, no, what's going on here? Is the, has God abandoned the universe to its own rules or is he the boss moving it in the way he wants to is Olam Kimen Hago Noheg or Olam Kiratzon Elohim Noheg even more than wanting Dean to be binding on creation God wants us to take full and utter responsibility for everything we do and so even if it's Baal Kocho, that he's, he's, God is willing to dispense with Dean, where the seeds wouldn't grow and the woman wouldn't conceive, in favor of our full responsibility, accountability for everything we do. So if it were the case that punishment were just forthcoming, then, then God would have abandoned the whole project. No, you're, you're to right. To give us choice and accountability. You're right, because the text says, they will be judged they will have to account for their actions but those accountabilities is postponed I don't know to a certain universe but the existing universe I live in has intrinsic principles which functions but what he's asking but you find that sometimes he breaks into that. The sea splits. The Egyptians go on, drown, and we go on dry land. So who is this God? Is the Hashgacha, is he involved? Does he make decisions on my personal life? Or is he a general principle which doesn't break into the individual life of a human being? I leave you with that question because that ultimately is the question. To believe in a personal God, you become a manic depressive. Do you understand that? 
You know what I mean by manic depressive? He loves me, he loves me not. Six day war, he loved me. Young Kippur war, not so much. So I'm going up and down. So sometimes my arguments against divine providence is I want to keep a person's sanity. Because that's what my money is very concerned that people who believe in a personal God feel everything is possible. Everything could be changed. There's nothing I have to adjust to. I just have to have the right signal to wake up God to act in a certain way. Once I do that, I've solved the problem. So what type of universe do I live in? One, a fragile universe, open to all possibilities, because the God of that world is also not restricted to one direction. So he's open. So we walk in life. The world, Obama, he's just a, a tool, a pawn, and ultimately in the Lord's hands. The Congress, the Senate, Iran, I don't believe that anything's going to happen. So I don't have to ask Halevi to go write an article on it, on the plausibility of, of atomic warfare. I just have to know, this is what they would say, be an Elochiyid, be a Shemesh Shabbos, eat kashrus, put on film in the morning, and pray, and forget about it. Is that what my belief in a personal God leads me to? Does a personal God create passivity, resignation before the world? When I feel the world is not in my control, I have no control on where the world is going. So why bother? Because whatever I do could be negated by the Lord. So what does religion do for a human being? It could bring comfort, and it could bring great imaginative myths. The myth of Egypt was a myth we carried all our lives. We rehearsed this myth every Pesach. And what should we feel after Pesach? I live in an open world. Everything is possible. I don't have to build political relationships in the world. I don't have to take politics seriously. I can build wherever I want. It's all mine. God gave it to the Jews. Excuse me, Rabid. There's certain problems, you know, which your decisions are doing. No, I'm not. I'm acting according to Rashi. I could show you a Rashi that agrees with me. <laughs> so Rashi runs the world. In Israel, Avadi Yosef runs the world. I care about America. I care about my nuclear strength. Avadi, what do you say? Okay, we'll get Eli Ishai into the picture and there will be catastrophes. That's when I am an enemy of religion because the consequences of what they want to believe in have enormous, enormous, dangerous consequences. 
in this country there are people who believe whatever is written in the Bible is true. And if you don't believe in it, you're not really a religious person. I judge what you believe in, not that you demand others to believe like you, but I ask you to please think of what you think the consequences of your beliefs are. And who, you know, can I join you in this faith gesture? Am I willing to take the risks that your faith demands? That's the big issue today in the country. Religion affects politics because it creates fantasies as to what is possible. It enables you to step out of the universe you live in. You're parting the sea. <laughs> well, I don't know I have to learn how to swim. I just said that. No, the right moment when Moshe has to just knock the waters. I have to have an army. Speak to any yeshiva bacha. The answer is, I am protecting the country by my learning Torah. What am I going to say to him? It's not. I said, if everybody went to a kolel, would you still live here? I'd take the first plane out of here and hide someplace and ban all religious books <laughs> as subversive, dangerous. They ignite fantasies. 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 But that's how we've lived. We've lived by these imaginative beliefs. Oy vey, that's true. So part-time being Jewish is being part-time crazy. Then you come to Hartman's lectures and some sobriety hits you. And you go home and say, is he from? <laughs> is he truly religious? I don't know. Anyway, we finished the first two lectures on Exodus from Egypt. The next two is going to be on the chosen people. Oh, boy. Watch what I do with that. You want to give the lecture ready? <laughs> okay, people, shut up. You have been listening to David Hartman, President Emeritus and founder of Shalom Hartman Institute. Subscribe to this podcast to be notified of more lectures in this series. For information about the Hartman Institute and our courses in North America and Israel, go to hartman.org.il. The Hartman Institute podcast is produced by Tony Jason. Music by Kevin McLeod. I'm Alan Abbey. Thank you for listening, and we will see you again next time.